and welcome to Anarchism Interrupted, an anarcho-feminist podcast where we will discuss anarcho-feminist perspectives and readings, bringing together radical politics, anti-capitalism and feminism. Content warning for constant discussion of state and sexual violence throughout the whole episode, including prisons and police brutality. If you think that would upset you, please don't feel obliged to listen and feel free to come back at a later time. My name is Anna Marie, or Angel, and you can use she, her pronouns for me if I know you and we're friends, or they, them if you don't. And my name is Vicky, and I use she, they pronouns, and we are Anarcho-Feminists! Welcome to episode number three, mm-hmm. where we will talk about Feminism Interrupted, a book by Lola Olufemi, and uh, specifically we'll talk about the second chapter, which is about the sexist state. Yes. So I thought maybe we could start, I've, unlike last week, that's not how long ago it was, unlike the <laughs> last episode, um, where I attempted to summarise the reading and I failed, is maybe a, yeah. the nicest way to put yeah, it. Yeah, it's an understatement. Um, it was funny though. Yeah. <laughs> but not very informative. No. Yeah. This time, I've prepared more, and I'd like nice. two minutes, and I'm going to give you a summary. Okay. Should I also set a timer? Yeah. Okay, so I am going to set a timer for two minutes, and you're going to summarize the second chapter. Yeah. Okay. Three, two, one. Okay. The chapter, The Sexist State, outlines the power dynamics inherent within the state, an unboundaried form of power and coercion that shapes people's lives. <clears throat> the chapter focuses on the gendered, but also, of course, classed and raced effects of the state's actions, specifically in regard to the so-called protection of women, emphasising the way the state hides behind a smokescreen of performative equality. Um, for example, like having a particular number of female MPs or like a woman prime minister. It goes on to discuss the deeply fucked up effect of austerity, i.e. cuts to budgets and services and welfare, on women, especially refuges and support services for survivors or victims of domestic violence. And it also underlines the increasingly negative effect on black women and women of colour and the closure of specialist services that have all come under austerity. It also talks briefly about prisons and demonstrates their failure to protect survivors, considering 57% of incarcerated women experience domestic abuse. Um, Moving through this, the chapter goes on to briefly discuss the way that universal credit plays into the hands of mainly male abusers, as well as the despicable violence of detention centres, like y'all's word, oh my god, I'm losing my breath, (laughs) an infamously terrible institution which was opened in 2007 by a Labour government to detain those awaiting deportation. Before mentioning some feminist responses or strategies to counter the sexist state, such as refusal, solidarity and care for each other and direct action, Olufemi mentions the state murder of women by the police and prisoner state and how the brunt of this violence is enacted on black women. Ultimately, the chapter asks, what use is a chamber full of female politicians who declare themselves feminists if they step over dead women's bodies to do so? Did I do it? Yeah, you did. Incredible. I I hope people heard that last quote over me. Yeah, maybe I'll read it again because it's really good. Yeah. Um, What use is a chamber full of female... Oh, fuck. Yeah. You know what? It's fine. People heard it. (laughs) No, no, no. I want to say it's a really good quote. 
Well, maybe I'll read, actually, I'll read, like, the full quote, because I almost put all of it in, but then I was like, it doesn't make sense. When feminism is hijacked by the elites and feminist discourse seeps into the upper echelons of society, it is those with power that set the feminist agenda. They distract us from the ways that the state eviscerates the lives of poor women. What use is a chamber full of female politicians who declare themselves feminists if they step over dead women's bodies to do so? Yeah, that was also one of my favourite parts of the chapter. Well, I'm very impressed. Thank you! <laughs> and it was exactly two minutes. I'm very impressed. as if you prepared that in advance. Well, I obviously prepared. fit within the two minutes. Well, I, I tested it out a little. <laughs> no, I mean, I didn't... Anyway. <laughs> Definitely a lot better than last. Oh, yeah. So I was thinking maybe we could start just by talking about, like, what we thought of the, the chapter. Um, and then maybe we could talk a bit later on in more in detail about, like, the stuff it's saying specifically. And maybe, like, examples or... Um, I really liked it. I think that I agree with everything in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is basically... Yeah, like exactly the kind of feminism that I believe in, basically. So it was like a really nice, refreshing read, especially from somebody who is like, I think, around our age yeah. and lives in the same country. And like, yeah. So I thought that was really nice. What about you? Yeah, I agree. I what I really like actually is how like it's quite specific to the UK. Yeah. Um, which I feel like. I often don't necessarily read when I'm reading about, like, this type of feminist theory. Or, like, like abolitionist texts. Yeah. yeah. Um, just, yeah, and so it's nice to have, yeah, like, really specific examples. I also like how it's basically kind of like a love letter to Sisters <laughs> Uncut, who I also love. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think um, it's very clear as well in the way that it positions how negative the effect of the state is on our lives um, and how complicit it is in this, like... Misogyny. Misogyny, yeah. yeah. Thank you. In terms of, like, themes that the um, chapter kind of talks about, I tried to cover, like, all of them generally in my summary, obviously very mm-hmm. quickly, but there's obviously, like, the way that it talks about, like, the violence in terms of prison and policing... Then there's also, like, the violence of, like, welfare or, like, lack of welfare and, like, benefits uh, and the way that affects women. And then also, I guess, more specifically is this, like, um, the lack of resources and the lack of care for survivors of domestic violence and, I guess, also all all sorts of violences, but... Yeah, and also, like, the systemic forces that create, like the precarity in women's lives that make them, like, put them in a very specific position when it comes to state violence, where they're, like, especially vulnerable. Yeah, and, I like, especially especially for black women. Yeah, and I guess part of that is the ways in which women are harmed, which include things like women dying in prisons or in, like, police custody. Yeah at the hands of police officers and the way in which that's like not really talked about in mainstream feminism because it requires a certain kind of perspective and also because you know the women that that happens to are not 
the like privileged white woman yeah. that are in mainstream feminism or like girl bosses, they're like, you know, working class women. Yeah, they might be like mentally ill. Yeah. Um or I guess disabled in, in other ways as well. Or yeah. And there is this like they're almost kind of seen as like collateral as well of like, yeah. oh well the system works fine, it's just occasionally women die, whatever. When like that's not I mean, that's also, like, how the system is supposed to function. Um, but also that's, like, a horrible way to think about people. I think that's a really interesting distinction, which in looking at it as the state, um, like, not working properly and just failing in its job, but, like, it could be working well. And then looking at it as, like, this is how it's supposed to work. Like, it's on purpose, it's very intentional, and there isn't really a way to restructure it while keeping it a state mm. or, like, you know, a government or a prison that would actually, like, be compassionate towards people or... Yeah, I feel like it's um a, also, like, a really key distinction as, like, anarcho-feminism mm-hmm. rather than just, like, I don't know, like, even Marxist feminism or, like, Marxist-Leninist feminists, you know, who, who see the state as a solution of to their problems... Um, and I just like fundamentally do don't think it is because hierarchy, hierarchies are all bad, and structures like states just like breed a level of inequality, inequality and violence that like yeah. I don't yeah. want to live with. That's not the world I'm working towards. And I don't think that you even need to like look at it from a perspective of our hierarchies are bad. If you just look at it from a perspective of like how does this affect the lives of women? It's not very good, right? And one of the ways in which it harms women is that kind of instead of looking at women who are, you know, needing of support or needing to, like, leave an abusive situation yeah. and offering them support or care, they, you know, the state yeah. <laughs> incarcerates them or punishes them or, like, pushes them further into this cycle yeah. of, of harm and poverty. Um, and actually, recently... Sisters Uncut created a list of women who were murdered by the police and state system in England, Wales. And then another list was created, like, based in Scotland. In this, like, state-sanctioned murder. And, I mean, firstly, like, it's really sad that a lot of these women, you know, people weren't talking about them yeah. at all. And... I do also find it kind of sad that, like, now there are just names on the list. Oh, yeah. Um, But, I mean, it's... Yeah, I think it's a useful document to have because you can see some, like, clear patterns and then it allows you to fight back against the idea that it is just, like, an accident that will happen or sometimes uh, maybe people are suicidal before going to prison and that's how it happens. When actually, that's the thing that the list does as well, is that the suicides of women in prison are named as murders by the state because the situation in which they lived, or even outside of prison. Yeah, like, I mean, if you're going to put a mentally ill person in a horrible box and and take away their access to the things that they do to cope, like, the log... I mean, it's it's just very clear, like, the logical conclusion of what will happen. Yeah. And, And also, like... I think some of the stuff that comes up when you're doing like research to find these these women to to put on a list or just because you're trying to find these women is this like deep contempt for their 
ways of survival, their ways of being, and their whole self, you know, even within, like, reports about them, where, you know, they'll mention that, like, this one particular woman is, like, an addict or something, and, and that's mm. supposed to, like, immediately make you be like, oh, well, of course, like, she deserved it, or, like, of course, like, she couldn't be cared for, or whatever, when, like, none of that is inherent, like, none of this makes anybody meant to die, like, you know? Yeah, and it's the difference between, like, the deserving victim, yeah, like, the criminal, which is just a category created by the state to justify its violence, when often these, like, you know, quote-unquote criminals are just, like, driven to desperation from living in poverty, and then their crime is something like stealing food that they need to live. Also, I mean, there then is also this, like, divide where people like to have this idea where, like, they they personally don't commit any crime. But, like, actually most people do things against the law, like, most people do. We follow the laws to a T. I personally do, obviously. Okay, me too. Are there any cops listening? Can we put that in writing? Um, We are lawful. (laughs) (laughs) But what I'm trying to say is just that, like, because people have such, like, a specific image, and it's, like, a a racialized image and a classed image of, like, a criminal or, like, a bad woman or a woman who deserves violence, they just completely are able to separate them and their behaviour from it. So, you know, I feel like it's very obvious in terms of, like, people's drug use and stuff, like, you know, wealthy white people use drugs, and then they turn around and they see, like, poor black people doing it, and they're like, that's terrible, that's such bad behaviour, I can't believe they're doing it, and on the street or whatever, and it's like, well, you go to your mansion and you do drugs there, like, fuck off, you know? Yeah. And so a lot of the women who died in prisons or in police custody were women that were like already disadvantaged by the state system and there's a bit in the chapter like i think a sentence um that goes the state rationalizes the kind of violence through inquest and apology that i thought was really well put because then you know you can't cover up everything all the time so sometimes the state or a prison has to look into like a suspicious death that's occurred and provide it in like a publicly available format that's called a fatal accident inquiry mm-hmm. and then you can look those up and you can and they always just list all of these things that were obviously done really badly and even against their own systems and then finish off with oh but it was an accident you know it was just something what can we do what can we do Yes, it's out of our control. And I think the state kind of banks on people, like, not finding out and never reading those things. Yeah. And, I mean, they are hard to find out because they're also covered up on purpose and, like, written in a certain way. But also, like, the state is tuned in to the fact that, like, lots of people are able to just not care. Yeah. So they use that to their advantage to even further, like... Yeah, like, you know, why doesn't anybody care about these women? I know, I know, why? (laughs) That are, like, fucking dead. Yeah. And people talk, I guess, in, like, all kinds of feminisms, they talk about domestic violence all the time. And that issue is, like, so interlinked with women in prisons. Like, you said, 57% are survivors of domestic violence. And also, therefore, interlinked with, like, those deaths. There's also, uh, I don't know the exact statistic, but, like, there's also a really high proportion of people who were, like, um, you know, in care homes and stuff in prisons as well, and, like, 
which I also feel like is like yeah another example of the way that the cracks but also like the purposeful cracks within a, a welfare system mm. are then like <laughs> like the prison is created as this like net for that to catch people out of those cracks except from it's not a welfare giving institution it's a horrible place <laughs> that doesn't help anybody I guess every aspect in which the state says that it's giving welfare, it's not, you know, like with benefits and stuff in the UK, like they're not enough to live on. And the system through which you have to get them is like traumatising for people. Yeah, and then there was a whole thing about personal independence payments. Yeah, but I mean also like the benefit system has like led to the death of many many people and especially disabled i can't remember the numbers off the top of my head but i mean it's a well the chapter mentions that like the state keeps refusing freedom of information requests about those kinds of numbers which again in the like list of women murdered is a similar story you know if you look into freedom of information requests you find a lot of responses that are like just trying to find loopholes or something and trying to be like, well, I can't tell you how many deaths there are because of this and blah, blah. Because it's a Thursday on the eighth day of the month. (laughs) And it's not, yeah, it's not even good excuses. And it's just like, there is a sense in which that violence is hiding in plain sight and then also is being enabled by people in power that have, like, co-opted feminist language or something to seem progressive. I just looked it up, or at least like very briefly looked it up, because I remember reading when this particular report came out about austerity, and it says that the that the austerity like policies of of these cuts and uh, approach to benefits and stuff has um, is to blame for one hundred and thirty thousand deaths. I think from I guess twenty ten until twenty eighteen. I guess, um, but I mean, we I'll leave the link in the description box so that you can read it um and uh, yeah and, and it's all it calls them like preventable deaths um which obviously is like an astounding figure to try to get your head around um but yeah i, I mean but but like also like in a political climate where that happens with that many people die like you you must have have created such a significant like wealth of like complete apathy and uncare for whole groups of people you know like yeah it's very upsetting and when did feminism interrupted come out 2020 yeah it came out march 2020 actually yeah i now remember do you want to talk more about kind of like the way that the state has created a kind of smokescreen or like bids for like equality in quotation marks i guess this is the problem with like the way in which um, feminism, quote-unquote, is now inside the state, or you can have things like, yeah, like women in parliament using that word, is that that version, like, is not really feminism because it's actually always about upholding state power and, like, a bunch of other beliefs that are really oppressive, like a belief in how the borders should be protected that then leads to... Things like the Yarwood Detention Centre, which was built by a, a Labour government, I think. Yeah. Which is also interesting because then if you look through these examples of like the austerity cuts, the detention centre, they're all from different parties. 
It's almost like the party doesn't matter. Like it, it's because they're a state. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's why I thought it was important to include the fact Yaleswood was opened by a Labour government in mm-hmm. the in the summary because like people like to hold up, you know, like Labour as like a different party, a good party, and the Tories as like the worst one. And and the the way that we solve how bad the world is right now is we get Labour into government, but actually like clearly. That's not the be-all and end-all of political struggle. Yeah, and so to add on to that, I think there's also, like, this idea that the state protects women, or that police protects women, um, or, like, that the prison's necessary to protect women from abusers. But that's a smokescreen in the sense that, like, the state more often incarcerates, like, survivors than it does abusers and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And the state, like, the agents of the state, like, you know, poli- I don't know the numbers, but I do know that there's like quite high levels of domestic abusers in like police forces. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. So like that also tells you a particular story about what the state is doing versus how it wants you to think of what it's doing. Yeah, like these protectors of women. Yeah. Are actually the abusers. Yeah. Which is like, in a way, a really clever trick. trick. Yeah. And I think that's like the insidiousness of the state is that it needs all of these kind of like manipulative strategies to prop itself up and then people do the rest of the work yeah and i guess like it's it's also about how like there is a narrative of of like oh this is a win for feminism like oh we had a woman prime minister that's a win for feminism or we have i have no idea if this is accurate but like we have 50 percent like female MPs or, like, the Tory party has the most, like, women MPs, you know, none of those things are wins for feminism, or at least, like, if it is a win for feminism, that's not a feminism I want to be a part of. I wonder if maybe we have some thoughts about anarch feminism mm-hmm. in regards to that. Yeah. Because I feel like that's what I like about anarch feminism, is that it kind of like foregrounds a commitment to being against the state. I feel like one of the things that I like about anarcho-feminism is that it feels like obviously I do think that like anything unfortunately can be like co-opt- co-opted by capitalism and stuff, but but I think anarcho-feminism is quite hard to like ingest <laughs> in that way. Whereas like feminism in a neoliberal form, in a in a mainstream form, although not all mainstream feminisms I think are bad, but like the stuff we're talking about now, like, yeah, I, it's very, very easy to kind of, like, look like you're taking in the message of feminism, but turn around and, like, either do exactly what you were already doing or continue to... Well, you say that, but I, and I'm not proud of this, have an anarcho-feminist flag that I bought on Amazon. I know. (laughs) And I still said yes to making a podcast with you. Yeah, I can't believe I'm making that information public. We all make mistakes. Okay? We do, we do. Grow and learn. I obviously do not support Amazon. No. Or anarcho-feminism. <laughs> what a stupid ideology. Well, next time, if you want one, you should tell me and I'll sew you one, okay? Yeah, that's much more DIY. <laughs> well, it's not do it yourself, it's get your flabby to, to do it. Get your to do it. G-Y-F-D. Gifter. Gifter. Ah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, fuck Amazon. Um, do you have any like quotes you want to say from this? Well, I did, but you already read it. Oh, just one, that one. The same one that you said. 
Oh, well, one thing I really liked. This is so cute. We're both like getting our copies out. Um, one thing I really liked is the the there's like a I don't know if it's like a poem or just like a quote at the beginning of the chapter, which I did actually think about reading, but then I forgot. But I'm gonna read it now. Look, I get radicalized by love. I get radicalized by love and by austerity and by work. It's easy to get radicalized just by paying attention to experience. Um, Marion Bell. And I really like that as like a framing of all of this, as like articulating how uh, attention to the the violence of the state and then also refusing to, or like trying to fight against the state are all forms of like love Mm. and care. And I like that a lot. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I... Wow. What I'm going <laughs> to read now is not sweet at all. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. But um, this is on the section about state killings. Yeah. If black women die disproportionately at the hands of the police, historically and in the present moment, we must ask, what is the purpose of the police and detention system? Is it right that some women must die so that others are protected? Do we wish to be the recipients of that kind of protection? When we understand race and gender as inseparable, there is no feminist case for the existence of the police. And I like this because of how, like, what's the word? Clear. Yeah, like, definitive it is about the fact that, like, if you take feminism to its logical conclusions, yeah, like, you have to be anti-police. And also, yeah, how it asks that question of, like... I think that's similar to the quote that you read before about stepping over the bodies of dead women, you know, kind of asking you to to not look at it as some kind of compromise or like, I don't know, like a legitimate trade-off, right? Or I guess that we just have, like, this is just what we have to live with when like, you know, you can't fight for a world where no woman dies yeah. at the hands of like a cop. Right, and also it's not a, a random woman, right? Like it's always like the same classist and like racist reasons why women die. So, do you think it is possible for that kind of anti-capitalist feminism to genuinely become like widespread or take the place of the current mainstream versions of feminism? I feel like that's a really big question. Yeah, well, we're making a podcast. We're here to ask the big questions. I'm a philosopher. And not answer any of them, right? Yeah, again, I'm a philosopher. <laughs> I'm not. Unless. Oh. Um, I think it depends on what you mean by mainstream. I think our media landscape is just so fucked up, it's quite hard to gauge, like, the actually. Yes, yeah, sorry. That's yeah. uh, but I guess, I mean, also. Also like, in elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... You know, it's quite hard to, like, gauge how, you know, what people actually believe and how people actually feel. But I do feel like there are ways that that really great feminist critiques of certain things have become mainstream and not lost all Mm -hmm. of their edges. I think there are always people who are, like, quite... What's that word where you're, like, opportunistic? And they kind of want power and ego, so they, like, step in and act like they should be the ones who are talking about, you know, keeping the streets safe or whatever, but they're actually working with the police. But but for, for all of those people, there are also still people who keep it really... Yeah. You know, who, who, like, yeah, who, who practice, like, a proletarian feminism. And, yeah. yeah, I think that 
So, so I guess my answer is yes and also no, but like it depends where you look, yeah. I guess. I mean, I think what makes it so hard is that the people who are radicalized by their experience are also the ones that are less likely to gain power in the capitalist system, and that's all on purpose. And so, like, in a way, that would require the complete dismantling of all the systems, but unless that happens, it's probably not realistic. Yeah, but then... But then I get a lot of people are not in government. Yeah. Not everybody's a government agent. (laughs) I say to myself at night. (laughs) That sounds like what a government agent would say. (laughs) Yeah, so like... And, you know, we are the many, there are the few. So but then the ordinary people are all radicalised. No, but I think that's more and more that is what's been happening. And, and I do think that, like, for example, you know, a kind of, like, abolitionist feminism of, like, anti-prisons, anti-police, and, and in part because of the Black Lives Matter protests around George Floyd's murder last year. Uh, but then also in the UK with um, Sarah Everard's murder you know in responses to that I do feel like there is just like much more of an awareness generally about the possibility of a world without Mm. gendered violence without violence altogether without borders you know all of that yeah and I feel like the state functions by making you think that it's inevitable and it's kind of like also outside of time like it's always been there it's like going to be there forever and so, yeah, like, I think it's really nice to see people starting to, on a kind of, like, bigger scale, imagine a different future. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that, like, at least in the yeah, like, the police are an institution that only started in the 1800s. And there were, I, I know there's, like, a poster that gets shared that's kind of like, come to this town hall meeting, do you want there to be police? No! <laughs> <laughs> Um, but that's also, like, something else, I know we're talking only about that one specific chapter in this book, but something that the book does overall, which I think is really nice, is it, it, it says that part of feminist work is imaginative work, it's a creative work, it's deciding that there's going to be a better future, and therefore working towards it, but, like, that first step of, of deciding to, you know, I don't know, make a sign, or go to a protest, or you know, argue with people or whatever, is, like, imagining that the world is going to be better and we're going to abolish everything that's terrible. Yeah, I gotta say that is the one of the main pillars of my feminism is arguing with people. So I'm glad I feel represented in that description. <laughs> Aries, yeah. energy coming off you. <laughs> Fuck. I did like that about the book as well. Mm-hmm. Because... I feel like it's a nice counterpart to being like, you know, we want to abolish these systems and then kind of going, but what do we want to create? And the things that you want to create, you can start creating them even before the systems are abolished. It's like they come hand in hand and hopefully like you create the future you want to see. And I guess maybe we could talk about like how working against state violence would create a better future for women, or, like, what kind of actions would bring about that future? Well, so one of the answers, I guess, to that question in the chapter is is direct action. Yeah. Um, Love it. Yeah, big fan. Guess the goods. Hey. 
big fan theoretically. Obviously, never done anything spicy in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm the least spicy bitch around. <laughs> never. Once again, we are lawful. Lawful, lawful podcast. In fact, we're gonna change our name. <laughs> Lawfulness interrupt. No, wait, that makes no, 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 it's the opposite. We're gonna say anarchism loft, lord. <laughs> no, that doesn't make any loft. sense. Loft. What about illegalism interrupted? Nice. <laughs> and then a winky face. <laughs> y- yes, sorry. Yes. Back to direct action. So, direct action. Or, like, ways to get to the world that we want. Um, well, I have a quote that I really liked from that. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll just read that. No. Um, (laughs) This is going to be so confusing for our listeners. So I have a quote that maybe I'm just going to read. That's from um, a person from Sisters Uncut. Sandy. Yeah. Direct action allows us to take the fight to the streets where the people are and out of the hands of the ruling class. If people can see it, they can imagine it. Direct action is a physical act that should be designed so that the story tells itself. We must be creative and flexible in the ways we use direct action. We also recognize the ways that community organizing can be utilized to help us imagine things that don't yet seem possible. And yeah, I think that's like a really key idea for me, is the way that direct action can make the impossible possible, you know, and just like enact the world that you want to see just with people power. Yeah. Um, This is just another quote, but this is just from Olufemina. A commitment to disrupting the state's violence when and where we see it takes feminism outside of the realm of words and theories and makes it a living, breathing set of principles. It reminds us that where we can make interventions, we should, and that only work that seeks to shake and unsettle the very foundations of the sexist state is feminist work. Some of the examples of, like, direct actions that are in the um, chapter are mostly, if I remember correctly, about Sisters Uncut, which is a direct action specific like group that originally was founded to cu- to to fight against cuts to domestic violence services, but I think now they probably describe themselves as like focusing on state violence as well as customs to violence, you know, like for survivors of all kinds of violence, including state violence. Um, so yeah, they're like an explicitly abolitionist group, and they do like quite a lot of visual and also in some ways like joyful um like occupying of streets um occupying some a group of them occupied holloway prison uh which wasn't a prison then and it it was like empty and so they occupied it to kind of show like what the building could be and how it could become like a community uh, like a hub of community care um of course all the bureaucracy is happening and i don't think the people who did buy the building are actually following through on what they said they would do but yeah, that's all kind of up in the air. Um, are there any specific, I guess, like examples of direct action you'd want to talk about? Or maybe resources if people want to learn more about it? Yeah, I think there's quite a few um, freely available online kind of guides, like one-on-one to direct action. And yeah, I remember one that I really liked, I think we can put in our description, that just tells you like different types of direct action, kind of how to keep yourself safe and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I was thinking of talking about ACT UP because I've been reading this book called Let the Record Show. You should maybe say what ACT UP is. Yeah, it's a direct action group that focused around supporting people with AIDS in the 80s. And 
I think what was good about them is that they had quite a decentralized way of organizing actions where they didn't need a consensus for an action by the whole group, but they just encouraged people to go and like create their own actions and if they get enough people from their local chapter right up to go with them then they go but whoever in the local chapter doesn't want to go just doesn't go and then that allowed them to have like a high number of like really creative mm. actions really really fast as well and i do feel like sometimes we are in those moments in history or like little pockets of time where that happens either to like groups like that or just to like things like the murder of Sarah Everard, but then it dies down because people get burnt out and they like... Yeah, but also even... I don't think it necessarily... Like, I, I definitely think people do get burnt out, but I also feel like it is also just like a natural kind of like flow. Like time... You can't always be on the streets. Yeah. You can't always be in a very particular state of like, I don't know, like always pushing forwards, always like going out to meet the, the bad stuff when like, yeah, life life does happen. And because I, I, I think that's sometimes what, like, I think you need, like, enough people to sustain, like, a group that's, like, trying to do stuff for for it to be okay when people don't do stuff. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because then it takes less pressure on, on people in general. And then also, like, burnout doesn't happen as often because people know it's okay to just, like, take a break and, like, check out. Well... I feel like that's true, but I feel like a lot of people get inspired yes. in these bouts. And then they might get to activism and see the reality of it. It's called sexy, Becky. <laughs> and see how sexy it is. Uh, no, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah, they might see like a really good action that worked really well and then join a group and then realize that most actions don't work that well or something <laughs> like that. And then people get burned out at the same time because they invest energy at the same time. But also, in a way, like, the system is designed to burn you out in terms of having to work for survival or maybe, like, even the unequal share of care that women perform for other people on top of having to work for survival. Yeah. Like, creates a space where, you, like, you literally don't have time or energy to be fighting against the system. Yeah, I mean, that makes me think about that uh, Maya Williams talk that we saw. It's called, like... Revolutionary Mothering? Revolutionary Mothering. And it's a really wonderful talk. Um, But one of the things that was said in it was just about how, like, spaces that don't prioritise care will not last. Yeah. (laughs) There's just no conceivable way. I, I don't know if this is in the ACT UP book. I haven't read it. But I do remember reading another book that talked a bit about some of the stuff that ACT UP did. And they had these, like, dyke dinners where, like, all the dykes would get together and they would, like, eat dinner together. Which is obviously classic dyke style. I think it was probably a potluck. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love the alliteration. <laughs> dyke dyke dinner. Yeah, I know. I've always wanted to do one. Um, but I feel like doing those kinds of things with the people that you're trying to organise a better world with is also a way of like establishing communal care for each other and not always having this focus on like this very like macho kind of world building where you're out in the streets and you're fighting the police every day or you're getting arrested every day well you know what I mean it's a yeah. bit like what we were talking about last episode with mannequism and stuff and I, I think even when people are trying not to they do still have like a really and I feel like I fall into it sometimes too they still have this really specific kind of like hero's journey idea about what activism looks like and what, like, good activism looks like. Yeah. But that's also why I think the uh, protests that were around Sarah Everard's murder 
And then also how that coincided with, like, Kill the Bill and, like, fighting the police crime and sentencing act, is that what it's called? But that's why those protests were so inspiring, I think, because they were so collective and... Mm -hmm. And they brought together, like, a lot of different people as well that were working on different aspects of liberation. Yeah. But, like, could all agree on this one thing. Yeah. Which is that the cop bad... I wonder if actually we should maybe explain a bit what the Sarah Everard murder was about for our listeners instead of the UK. <laughs> um, many listeners. Like, it was, I think, back in March 2021. Oh, was it March? Yeah, it was in England. A police officer, like, kidnapped and murdered a woman called Sarah Everard. And after that... There was a bunch of protests. Well, there was a I bunch of was memorials. Yes. Yeah, there was a lot of vigils for her. Very, One yeah. in specific, uh, specifically in uh, Clapham, London. And they were, like, clamped down by police officers. Yeah. And, you know, people were, like, held down and some people were arrested, things like that, when they were, like, gathering for literally just a vigil. And so I think that was, like, a really poignant like moment for people even if previously they might not have been that anti-police where they were like oh so this police officer like murders a woman and then police officers like don't allow women to even mourn. mourn for her and all of these things include violence maybe <laughs> police doesn't protect women shocking and today actually came out that that police officer's colleagues had nicknamed him basically based on him harassing women which is a common theme in also the list of women murdered when it comes to the police officers that have assaulted women some of them you know some like newspapers articles and stuff about them or also their colleagues had nicknamed them like the groper or something and then they put them in charge of investigating abusers and obviously they, they don't or they do something bad. Like of, lie about... Yeah, or, you know, prey on that, like, victim that they were supposed to, like, investigate the abuser of. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, like, really horrendous because every time there are precursors, there are things that can be done to, like, stop these men. And it's just that, like, that's not actually what the system is supposed to be doing. Like, I mean, how do you even get into a job like that? Right, I mean, it just encourages... Yeah, I mean, also, I'm not sure if it happened today, but, like, I also saw that, like, the police commissioner, or whatever her name is, was, like, focusing on the fact that this guy that murdered Sarah, um, like, betrayed his colleagues, because that's obviously, like, the most tragic part of the situation is is that you know like his poor colleagues oh boo hoo hoo like he really let them down by murdering a woman yeah they must be going through a tough time really okay i think we should mourn them how he let down his colleagues is the fact that people know about it really is is it yeah you know i mean because they didn't care it was happening before they knew that like he was a creep the way uh, most police officers are yeah and you know that didn't let them down that was part of like their banter or whatever so, yeah, and I also, um, yeah, I remember when that happened, there was at least, like, some discussion about the way in which there are, like, deserving victims right. and undeserving victims. I was gonna bring this up, yeah. 
and how, yeah, like, people were protesting the death of Sir Everard and kind of talking about how, like, she was just walking home and to some extent, like, feeding into the narrative. Yeah, because I was going to say, I think one of the reasons why there was, like, widespread response to her murder was because she's, like, this white woman, I think she was middle class, so, like, these middle class white women identified with her and then realised... It could happen it to could them. It could happen to them in a way yeah. maybe they hadn't sort of realised before or or I, because she wasn't kept kept safe in quotation marks from, you know, by police, I mean. Uh, maybe that also led people to suddenly kind of realise that actually the system could harm them and also has already, I mean, hopefully they realise this, but also yeah. has already been harming women who were racialized and, and uh, working class women. Um, yeah, in ways that are... You know, people don't cause the same level of uproar about, but they obviously should be. Um, yeah. That's also why I felt like the way that... <laughs> this is basically just me being like, I have a crush on Sisters Uncut. Um, <laughs> but I did think that the way that like the groups of Sisters Uncut kind of like shaped the, the, the story of what happened into a really potent message about proximity to state violence and not just focusing on Sarah but also then on what increased police powers will look like and do to already marginalized communities you know yeah and like I guess like centering as much as possible women of color in in these discourses about violence against women something that I did want to share actually I don't know if you had time to read it um but was this zine that has like an introduction by Mariam Carber who's this quite like well-known like prison abolitionist I think she's on Twitter at like prison culture and she just came out with a book actually that I really want to read uh called like we do this till we free us I think mm-hmm. and you know I, I yeah I, I think her work is really great and I've also personally found it like really useful in terms of becoming a prison abolitionist but like she yeah so she wrote this introduction to this like is called like open letter to the anti-rape movement and the original letter was written in like 1977 I think by a specific division of like anti-rape activists who I think had like a you know shelter and stuff and were providing some kind of support to survivors and then the introduction kind of like contextualizes it but also talks a bit more about like the the current situation and I thought it was a really interesting thing to read alongside all of these discussions about mainstream feminism, carceral feminism, prison abolitionist feminism, and also how specifically conversations around violence against women, and I guess specifically like sexual violence, but also just generally, um, get co-opted in a way and like used to further criminalise people, you know, and, and how when you work, like even those who work within these movements that are supposed to be kind of about like being against and abolishing violence, they, after a while, kind of start to, like, buy into particular, like, state forms of, like, in quotation marks, justice, or, like, the justice system. And the the letter is, like, in the uh, in America, so I do think that the context is different, and I don't really know, in terms of, like, the 1970s, how the anti-sexual violence movement looked in the UK, but I also think that, like, the threads are all super similar. I I also thought that the the open letter has like some suggestions of what they're doing of like building alternatives and i thought maybe we could like talk about them yeah i haven't read this yet so it will be a a reaction <laughs> a reaction <laughs> podcast to uh the letter to the anti-rape movement 
Just, uh, you know. Just chill things to talk about with your yeah. housemate. And also, I guess this is all in the context of, like, seeing uh, rape as the responsibility of, like, all the people in a community. You know, like, it's not just an individualised thing. Uh, one, we encourage people to get together to discuss ways to watch out for each other. This includes block watching to make neighbourhoods safe, organising at workplaces to get support to deal with hassles from bosses and fellow workers, and organising at schools to get self-defence de- classes, etc. Yeah, good suggestion. I like how it's basically, like, unionised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, and at work, too. Join I mean, that would union. help with, like, everything. Literally everything. <laughs> Oh, you've got acne? Join a union. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Had a bad day? Join, Join a union. union. <laughs> um, number two is, we try to create the consciousness in people that they should respond to a scream or a call for help and that they should go to a woman's aid if it looks like she's being hassled. Have you ever done a, like, bystander intervention? I have. Yeah. Same. It I- was amazing. Yeah, it was good, but mine involved a lot of, like, role-play, and, yeah, like, that was kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. Because also mine just involved, like, these, yeah, like, other students, and some of them were men. Yeah. You know, like, role-playing harassing women in a bar? Yeah. I'm just like, who thought this was a good idea? Like, I don't need to role-play. I I lived this just yesterday, (laughs) you know? And, yeah, and also... I didn't even realise I thought this until you just brought it up, but I feel like different people have like maybe different levels of responsibility for sexual violence. You know, if it's a friend that you've actually been enabling passively for like five years, every single time you're out, like, you're not a bystander, you're actually like also abusing women in a way. Yeah, I I agree with that, but I also think that like, I don't think that that is, at least the, the... Workshop I went to, I don't feel like that was the vibe of, like, you know, if you know the person, you're still just a bystander like the rest of us. Mm. Like, I don't feel like that was the vibe that it was giving off. I do think that, like, having the uh, roleplay was, like, quite intense. (laughs) But I also think that's really useful because, like, I... It was only after I did the workshop that I realised how just, like, much confidence it gave me and how much little confidence I have about being in public. And I kind of needed some kind of push to like yeah but yeah i mean i was lucky and i think every single person was a woman in my workshop oh i was not that lucky and also mine was like most for like student leaders or something like that which i wasn't i don't know why i was there but a lot of them what aries (laughs) (laughs) but a lot of them were in sports clubs which I think was part of the bad vibe for me, is that I was surrounded by these jocks... Extremely bad ...that vibes. were taking, like, way too much enjoyment in these role plays. And that's where I was like, I don't know, man, like, I don't think you're just a bystander. Yeah, <laughs> Sounds that's Sounds like fair. you've done this before. It's coming out way too easy like, for well, you. Like, wow, this improv is really coming easy, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, before we move on, just one more thing about those workshops is that I went, and, like, I obviously went with, like, loads of queer people, and the two people who were leading it were quite attractive. And one of my friends was in the in the role play, and the one of the people who was leading the workshop was being the harassing person. But, like, it was so funny, because my friend was obviously attracted to her and was kind of enjoying the attention. <laughs> oh, God. In that very specific context, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That is so queer. It's yeah, I know, right? So it's funny. so queer. <laughs> 
Um, right. You ready to move on? Oh. Um, well, there was a thing I wanted to say about direct action when we were talking about that, um, and specifically, like, a feminist approach direct action being about creating that kind of communal care and actually being about quite maybe, like, mundane things. Because I feel like if you really are caring for the people, that doesn't always, you know, like, make for a spectacular event. Yeah. And that's where, as well, the, like, macho idea of direct action doesn't work anymore. Because, yeah, like, everything that you do in order to even create that action requires care. And, like, who's doing it? But at the same time, I do want to be at the top of the barricade waving a flag. That's fair, too. Aries. <laughs> or is that just, like, bisexuality? No. <laughs> Um, so back to the alternatives. There's just two more. So the third one is uh, we print the descriptions of men who rape, hassle and assault women who so that rape will become a public issue, so that these men will lose their anonymity and so women can be warned of some particular men. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I love those like Google Docs and stuff. I think there's one like in the music scene, I oh, think, yeah. that I saw. And every time people complain so much... But I love it. <laughs> I think they're really useful, I mean... They are useful, but also they're, like, you know, taking back power of, like... Yeah. Um, what, do they, what are they normally called? Like, whisper networks and stuff. I mean, obviously it is a bit different with, like, the internet. Because also, you can't, like, the internet doesn't have a street in the same way. Like, you do need to mm -hmm. have, like, some kind of public-facing thing for people to just, like, find it. But then, obviously... But that's what the whisper network is. It's, like, where undercover like people know each other who know each other who share it who share it yeah yeah i yeah i think that's like really invaluable and i feel like that i have no idea how you would figure it out but like i feel like those kinds of like gossip information sharing stuff mm -hmm. like has probably saved like a lot of people yeah or even just like regular gossip that yeah, is that like too. always like feminized in a really misogynistic way when it's like a really good way of sharing information I love gossip. I love but gossip. Our entire podcast is just gossip with names taken kind out. Kind of. But, like, good faith gossip. Oh, I'll take it. I like any gossip. <laughs> My favourite is bad faith gossip. Stop. <laughs> right, and then the last one. This is quite long, but I'll just read it all. Um, four. Confrontations of rapists by women or women and men. The message we want to present to men is that we know who they are and what they did, that they are responsible for their actions and that they have the responsibility to change. We try to offer follow-up re-education by anti-sexist men. Although we think that each individual confrontation is important, we hope that each one will have the more widespread effect of encouraging people to force men to stop violent and sexist behaviour. This means that people have to deal with the men close to them, their family, friends, etc., as well as with strangers who hassle women. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I really do think that... I, I know you had a different experience, but I, I still feel even if, like, the vibe of the people that you're doing it with, uh, that you're doing, like, a, a, a bystander intervention workshop with, I feel like even so you maybe... Or you would hopefully still get some skills that you feel, like, Yeah, and I did. And since then, I've also read... Or, like, attend a workshop that Shauna Potter does, who's the lead singer of the band War on Woman, and she has a book called Give Harassment the Boot. And she organizes, like, bystander intervention workshops online and stuff right now. And those are really, really good. So maybe 
I will link those. Yeah, do. Yeah, and you know, she talks about like all of acronyms and stuff that you can remember. Well, I do want to go to another one. It was quite a few years ago. Like, I want yeah. a refresher. Yeah, me too. Also, yeah. But I do feel like, okay, so who goes to these, though? Is the people that are probably already intervening. And sure, like, you want more confidence in it, but like... I just, I don't know, it's like that last point of the alternatives about, like, confronting the men in your lives. Like, sometimes you have to be a man to confront them in an effective way. And those men never go to those fucking workshops. Yeah. So we need to bring the workshops to them. Except from, like, the people that you said who were at your workshop. Yeah, but they weren't taking it seriously. Yeah. Can you imagine? A rugby line, like, a bystander intervention workshop. Right, so, so like, but that's the thing. Like, you're not going to get people who are, like, virulent harassers go because or if they do they won't take it seriously but like if you get enough people to go so that the average person is is feeling able to or they don't even have to go to workshop but you know like feel able to intervene then like the number of people who do it will just like Mm -hmm. exponentially fall right yeah I don't know why I have this antagonism towards it I think it was probably just I mean it sounds like it sucks like if I like, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, and also, because, like, it's quite an upsetting, you know... Yeah, it thing is, to think yeah. about it. I mean, like, even... I'm really glad I went, but, like, I did also find it quite hard, and I I had to, like, think about stuff I don't really want to think about, and, like, you know... Yeah. I think going with, like, some friends is probably a good idea well, as well. Well, that's where yeah, I don't have any friends. Right, yeah, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> so, after reading the chapter, and also talking about it... um. Do you have any other reflections about, I don't know, what you think and or any of your experiences, if you want to share them? Hypothetically. Theoretically. (laughs) Oh, right. Um, I had a dream. Oh, God. (laughs) About. (laughs) I like action ones. (laughs) You can just say no. Like, (laughs) I guess. Well, okay. I guess what I was thinking about is how in the aftermath of Sarah Everard's murder, a lot of, and, and also, in the, like, whole Me Too, you know, we're living in the post-Me Too oh, yes, era now, but uh, at the time, people were sharing their experiences of violence, like, all the time, yeah. and... That was horrible. Yeah, but it was also, like, really telling how similar some of experiences were, and I mean, it's it's a bit of an overload, and also really upsetting to hear about, especially when you don't have control over like how and when you hear about it, because everybody's just talking about it all the time. But also, it made me think about how there's like a difference between kind of sharing maybe details about your trauma or whatever online, because you're trying to like raise awareness or make people believe you, and then sharing it in a context like maybe Sisters Uncut or another group, you know, where because you are fighting for a better future together. I don't know, there's something that feels almost like violating to me in the way that women have been forced to... Disclose stuff. Disclose stuff, like, publicly. And also, like, yeah, really individualizing. Like, it shouldn't just be on you to, you know, make people realize that women are oppressed. Yeah, or to bear, like, the the representational burden. Yeah of experiencing violence. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, like, really irresponsible in some ways. I'm, I'm obviously not saying that, like, I disagree with the Me Too movement or whatever, but I also think people mean so many different things when they say that. Um, but I do think that, like, it is sort of irresponsible to expect that it's it's going to be okay 
for everybody to just share stuff like that, both to the people that you're sharing to and also being a person who's sharing. And, uh, yeah, I also think that there does then become this, like, weird... this weird relationship between you have to say you experienced X type of violence in order to be a woman and to be, like, a, a millennial woman or to be a woman in the 21st century... Or, is that the century we're in? Yeah. 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 And I think that's really fucked up. And then, yeah, I... I yeah, I, I have a lot of issues, I guess, with an individualised approach to violence and then also a kind of, like, disclosure-based activism. Hmm. But I also think it's, like, it misses the point. It puts all of the pressure onto women once again. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, you hold the key to unlocking your oppression. Like, you can liberate yeah. yourself by telling us what happened to you. Uh, when actually, like, that's not really true. What What is, like, a staggering and horrible thing to think about is the number of men who, who harm and, and have perpetuated that harm. But, like, <laughs> you know, it wasn't really a movement about being, like, how about men talk to other men and get them to stop being dicks? Yeah. You know? Or... Which... <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it's it's not victim blamey, but it also kind of does feel a little bit like yeah, that. Yeah, it does. And I think any kind of framework that doesn't think about structural forces feels like that too because it's not just that like there are so many men who harm but then there's like a whole system that allows them to harm and like rewards them i think this is also something that is like attention for a lot of like feminist work where we sort of have to rely on like statistics and sometimes like anonymous names and experiences in order to demonstrate the structural and interpersonal nature of whatever tr thing we're trying to counteract. But at the same time, to be a statistic, to become a figure in a, a story about sexual violence is also quite painful. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and then, yeah, I think sometimes as well, kind of like more mainstream narratives around violence act like all violence is equal, or like all mm -hmm. people who... Um, are trying to live with violence or to heal from violence are also equal and they have like the same access to things or the violence affected them in the same way or whatever and none of that is true you know we're all different people and you know like the age something happened can really affect how you like live the rest of your life and stuff versus you know experiencing something when you're an adult or whatever your brain is fully formed um so I feel like a lot of that nuance is completely forgotten and lost. Yeah. Um, but uh, th that's not really me saying that like we shouldn't use kind of like statistics or numbers to talk about stuff. But I guess maybe just there needs to be like an awareness and a sensitivity to the fact that like behind those numbers yeah, are real different people. It kind of feels like you know it's defining people by like the worst thing that happened to them that like was out of their control that was somebody else like attempt to control their lives and then you're trying to fight for a world with like autonomy and giving people more agency and then you're talking about other people in that way but at the same time the like really like, the reality of it is that when you're talking about the statistics and stuff like you might not have access to what that person's life was because yeah. that wasn't like deemed important enough or valuable enough to be recorded by the state so you go into those records and you know try and find those accidents or whatever murders yeah and you, you don't find anything about the actual people 
Yeah, and, and then also when people are talking about things that I guess aren't about like people who are no longer alive there's also this kind of like implicit so like when people refer to statistics they often like don't even imagine that somebody who has experienced what they're talking about is like in the room or I mean I feel like it's that yeah difference between like you want to be around people and like think yeah we can all relate to each other but then at the same time you're kind of doing the same thing that, I don't know, oppressive narratives are doing if you're lumping everybody together into one group and like homogenizing that group because that's part of dehumanizing people. It's not allowing them to have their own narrative or not even giving them space to have it. And like it's especially upsetting if you're in a space where like you think that's not going to happen and then it happens again. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, yeah, I feel like it does always come back to this idea of care and how, like, yeah, we should just be better at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're trying. But it's so hard when you live in a system that so deeply doesn't care for yeah. you that sometimes it almost feels like you have to teach yourself the tools to care for other people, either from scratch or from, yeah, like, a foundation that's actually just taught you how to try not to think about other people. Yeah, I agree. I think one thing for me that has helped, I guess, with, like, caring for other people outwardly, it may be in a more practical sense than just kind of, like, oh, yes, I do care about other people in the world, <laughs> but, like, is learning a bit more as well, like, how to care for myself. Yeah. And seeing that as, like, this reciprocal relationship of, like, I care for myself, I can care for my, my community better, and then also yeah. my community can care for me better. Like, it's not about saying, like, we should individualise self-care, blah, blah, blah. It's just about seeing that as, like, a really mutual relationship. Because the tools that you learn to look after yourself, you can give to other people. And the tools that you wow. learn to look after people, yeah. you can use for yourself, you know? I've never thought of that. I really need more therapy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, hey, um, oh, hey, should we set up a Kofi so that Vicky can pay for therapy? <laughs> Right in, Please. let us know. <laughs> and I'll use it to have some physiotherapy. Nice. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> We've like eight listeners. <laughs> <laughs> if you each give me one pound, you'll have eight pounds. <laughs> yeah, which is not enough. Which is um, 30 seconds of a therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's all I need. Maybe that's You're all right. I need. <laughs> um, should we... End wrap it up? Yeah. and wrap up. I don't think I have anything else I want to say. I feel like we talked a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think maybe it would be great if we can talk about some of these things as well in more detail, like in other episodes. Like I would like to do one about care and like social uh, that's reproduction. That's exactly what I was going to say. And yeah. we could also do one maybe about direct action as well in a more yeah. general and specific way. I don't know. No, I agree, yeah. Because I was just about to start talking about like... Um, you know, how self-care has been completely misunderstood and also horribly individualised. And then I was like, no, we're just going off on another tangent. This recording is many hours now. So, yeah, I think it would be nice to expand on that in another episode. You can find us online at AnarchaFemPod on Twitter. And if you have things that you'd like us to read, you can email us. Or if you have comments about what we said, you can email us at anarchisminterrupted at protonmail.com. And 
you can find transcripts of our podcast episodes on anarchisminterrupted.wordpress.com which sucks <laughs> we hate wordpress we hate it but also i wanted to say normally i do the transcripts but um last time vicky helped me with the transcript of that episode so thanks yeah uh you're welcome so should we talk about a good thing that happened to us this week we can try i mean i've had a week from hell Okay, not, we're not talking about that. <laughs> yeah, okay, right, right. Well, then again, like, a week from hell, like, that could be fun for you, because, like, Satan could have visited. <laughs> I do love Satan. Uh, well, maybe you can start? Oh, God. If you have something? I really... I'm going to try to think of something, but it's... It's not been a good week. I think, like, my good thing for the week is that... Apart from, like, Shabbat, which happens every week, but I can't... That can't be my... F- you know, I feel like that's cheating. Um, and also I had a bad Shabbat last. Anyway. Um, but I think mine is actually that it rained, like, a fucking lot mm. here. Um, and I love rain, like, a lot. And I especially love when it rains, like, a lot. It rained a lot. And it rained a lot, Vicky. I think it was a day where half the usual rainfall of July fell in one day. Oh my god. And everything was flooded, places had to close. There were like rivers down the park the and park. down the roads. It was pretty cool. <laughs> Obviously, I hope people are okay. But it was pretty cool. And Vicky and I we um you know put on our raincoats and we went outside in it and we got our boots completely soaked and it was like super lovely. I just I love it. I feel like I feel like when it rains like I can like reconnect with like being in the world and Makes me feel, like, very happy and centred and, like... I just love the earth, too, and I think... It gives me, like, an excuse to actually, like, force myself to go outside because I find that quite hard. So, yes, very nice. Mm, I did find the iciness of the rain on my bare skin. (laughs) And the the dripping wet clothes. Okay, why are you making it weird? (laughs) No, I I liked it. It does bring you down. You still made it weird. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to. We're just describing what happened when we were out together, wink wink. <laughs> nudge nudge. Uh, anyway. <laughs> well, maybe that can be my good thing too, because... I feel like that's cheating, but okay. No, you're right, it is cheating. Well... Uh, you can definitely find something, I believe in you. I think my good thing that happened this week is a kind of queer event that I went to and organized that was a cycle and then like a hangout outdoors. It was pouring down, but people still came and I still managed to play some music with other people that I hadn't actually seen in a while. And I mean, everybody got along and it was kind of nice and everybody, yeah, like had a nice time and said things like that they miss like having queer community or maybe meeting new people. Yeah. And that it was like a really valuable time, and I made that happen. Yeah. Together with some friends. <laughs> it was all you. No, but that's like nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. yeah. And and I mean I, yeah, and I I also had a good time up until I got bitten by f- all the bugs that live on this earth. But apart, yeah, that was my good thing. <laughs> Come on, I really tried to keep it at the good things. No, you didn't. Well, I couldn't leave that out. That was really bad. I also dyed my hair. Yeah. Pink. And I helped. 
Oh, right, because uh, yeah, we can't go through all that stuff. We actually should say that we are really foolish. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Okay, well, no, maybe we shouldn't. No. Anyway, Vicky dyed her hair. <laughs> and then yeah. thought the shower wasn't working, but we hadn't switched it on. But I had to wash the dye out of <laughs> the hair with a jug. <laughs> and... Yeah, that yeah. was a good time. And then you made a joke about how maybe the shower isn't working because our light isn't switched on, which reminded me, next to the light switch, there is the switch for the shower, which was off. And I started panicking by this point. I was like, we're not going to have water for days. How am I going to shower? We're going to have to let the letting agency know. <laughs> we're just going to have baths from here on out. Yeah. Meanwhile, it was the switch. <laughs> I mean, your hair looks really great. Thank you. <laughs> great. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.